Welcome to the Wealth Doc Podcast with Mike Heckman from Sabo Point Wealth Management. In this podcast, Mike helps business owners, medical professionals, and retirees develop strategies to help preserve, protect, and pass on their wealth. Using practical strategies, Mike acts as your lighthouse keeper to guide your path of converting business assets into retirement income and inheritance funding. We don't like that shipwrecked feeling of not having enough, and you shouldn't either. Join Mike and get ready to explore the tools you need to manage your business efficiently, build its value, and have fun doing it. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Wealth Doc Podcast with your host, Mike Heckman. I'm Wendy McConnell. Hi, Mike. How are you feeling today? Oh, fantastic. Good to be here, Wendy. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Now we have a guest. It's very exciting. We have Pete Oquist today, who is going to tell us a little bit about the FDIC. Hello, Pete. Hello, Wendy. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, you're a retired examiner for the FDIC? That is correct. All right. We're going to learn all kinds of things today, Mike, right? Very exciting. No, it's Pete's always a good conversation to have. He's one of my favorite people to talk to. And uh, so excited to have him as our first guest on the Wealth Doc podcast here. Uh, so, so Pete, so when you started going to school, were you, was the FDIC your goal or talk a little bit about like uh, what you went to school for and what you wanted to be when you grew up? Yeah, that, that was totally out of my mind. I didn't even think about the FDIC. And in fact, I knew very little about the FDIC. So I was an accounting major at Michigan State, and I actually ended up in the oil patch working for an oil and gas company upon graduation. So from there, I wiggled my way through a couple of different agencies, but I've been doing this bank examining for over 30 years. I did. I performed as examiner with the state of Michigan for 15. I worked for the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago for five years and ended up with the FDAC the last 11, 12 years where I retired from. Awesome. So uh, what was your role with the FDIC? What, what was like the day-to-day -day for you? Or did you have different tasks that you had to do? You know, it was very interesting. And all three agencies did the same thing where it's um, your roles change every job, just about every week. If you're doing an assignment, you could be the person in charge of the examination. And what goes around comes around. It, it works pretty neat because... You could be, like I said, the examiner in charge on one exam, and then the next exam, you might be working loans or one of the little grunt guys there. So what people do remember is how you worked for them when you were not in charge. So it worked worked very well. Fantastic. May I just ask the um, the FDIC? Now, we all kind of know that about that's the insurance agency that protects our money at banks. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the FDIC is the only insurance agency for banks, and there's different regulators. The Federal Reserve is in charge of regulating Fed member banks, and the OCC is in charge of insuring national banks. And then the states usually have banking agencies that assist with those examinations, but the FDIC is the only agency that actually insures bank deposits. Wow. And what are you examining then? Well, when we... Um, when we supervise a bank, we do on-site examinations, usually every 18 months, depending on the size and complexity of the institution. If it's in trouble condition, we'll be in there maybe every six months. But normally, a bank is examined on-site 
every 18 months by a group from anywhere from four to up to 20 examiners. And then in between examinations, every bank is required to file quarterly call reports, which are standardized forms for their balance sheet and their profit and loss statements. And we use those as an analytical tool to evaluate their condition in between examinations. So when you see this, were, are the, were the banks like required to like have certain types of like investments on their own balance sheets or like how, do, how does that risk play in there? Um, usually uh, a bank can have what they want to invest in. There's certain limitations. I mean, they can't go out and buy uh, private corporate bonds or anything like that, but they can kind of decide their own mix. Ever since banks were deregulated back in the 60s, I believe. Oh, bankers that long. Used, oh, wow. Yeah. And it's, um, it's, it's amazing because the typical banker back in them days, they didn't have to be very intelligent to run a bank. The government told them, how much they could charge on uh, deposits, how much they could pay on pay on loans, whatever. So, so you just kind take... of went in and, and were, you're more of the transaction person rather than like setting up any like your own matrices or whatever. Exactly. And then once deregulation happened, all of a sudden, people had to think. They had to get <laughs> smart. They had to learn how to manage a bank. So, and... so, so then your, your entire 30-year career was after the deregulation when the bankers had to intelligently handle the risk. That is correct. Wow. All right. All right. So uh, can you take us through like an interesting uh, scenario that you had to deal with during your 30-year career? Yes, um, I, I can. Um, there was a bank no longer in existence. It's called IndyMac Bank, and it failed back in 2008. And my supervisor got a hold of me on a Tuesday and says, Pete, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but Thursday... I'm going to get a call from the FDIC out of Dallas, which is our uh, resolution and receivership division who handles all the bank closings. And they're going to ask me to send you down to Dallas for three months. And three I said, months. thanks for the heads up, Diane. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I was glad for the heads up because then I was able to go home and kind of make some preparations and everything. So settle your affairs. <laughs> yeah, settle my affairs. Exactly. So I get to Dallas and uh, it was pretty uh, interesting. Um, IndyMac Bank was just being taken over and we were in charge of dealing with the depositors. And the first thing I was told is you're working from seven to seven, it's 12, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. So that's what we did. And our office was just a mess because they had, we had three or four floors on a um, building downtown Dallas, and it was triangle in shape. So we had desks all outside every one of those triangle of perimeters, and we had phones yeah. just every place. How big Cables was your team? Uh, it was probably over two hundred. Oh wow, two hundred people working seven twelves yes, for was months. It was it was insane <laughs> to say so, the least. So what was all the work? Like, like what 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 was the well, reason for all the encumbrance? Well, um, my job was I ran a call center. So when a bank fails, the first thing the FDIC does it'll reach out to the depositors and say, "Hey, Mrs. Doe, um, we understand you have two hundred twelve thousand dollars in the bank, and our initial determination is that." Back then, it was a hundred thousand dollars, not two fifty yeah. like it is today. So, so one hundred twelve of your money wasn't protected. Exactly, and so if they weren't happy with that, then they called us. So we got 
the nervous a lot of happy campers yes exactly happy (laughs) campers that's a good term and a couple of those i have to share with you there was one woman who called me from california and she had four hundred thousand plus of uninsured deposits and this woman i talked to her for over 45 minutes and when i got done she actually thanked me and i I hung up and I, i just said wow all she needed was somebody to talk to so oh, I was glad I was that guy. All she um, needed was somebody to talk to. Yep. And then there was another guy who was at the far end of the spectrum. He was from New York and he called. Geographically and, and personality. Yes, yeah, so just about the same. <laughs> and he had $190,000 in the bank. And he called and said he didn't agree with the initial deposit determination that he was going to be out $90,000. And I said, well, let me review everything which I did while I was on the phone. And I said, uh, I'm sorry, Mr. Uh, X, but I agree with the initial determination. You have $90,000 uninsured deposits. And he said, why don't I effing go to DC and blow up your effing building? Oh, and no. hung up the phone. And I said to myself, wow, did this just happen? Um, right. So I went to my supervisor and I said to her, I said, I don't think this guy is serious, but I said, you just never know. Yeah. So I explained to her what happened and um, she ran it up the flagpole and, you know, that was the end of it. So then on my last day there in Dallas, a couple of the um, higher management people came down to thank the few of us that were leaving that day. And he asked me if I ever heard the story about what happened to that gentleman from New York that called. And right. I said, no, I had not. And he says, well, that afternoon, two FBI agents knocked on his door and said, if you ever threaten a federal employee again, you're going to prison. Wow. Wow, that was pretty fast. So So, so that afternoon, he's got the FBI, armed FBI agents knocking on his door because uh, he lost his uh, temper with you. Yes, that's exactly correct. Wow. Yeah. So do you see a difference in like how the FDIC was handling the banks then like, like when, what year did you retire? I retired six years ago okay. and I don't see a lot of difference in regulation, but what I, what I'm surprised at Mike, to be quite honest is the recent bank failures that we just had. I know why they failed because I'm a bank examiner and I can just look at the numbers and kind of, kind of figure it out. But right. what really surprised me is the regulators really dropped the ball on all three of these banks. The regulators it, dropped the ball. I yep. They I mean it was the management's fault, but the fact that the regulators didn't step in before or like two years ago say, hey, you're going down a rocky road here. We need to turn this bus around. I'm just appalled that that ha- did not happen. Interesting. Interesting. So so do you see the FDIC uh, handling the failures differently than than uh, what you had to deal with as far as uh, protecting depositors? Or, or does that seem to be like the same way it was when you, when you were taking care of those things? I don't see any difference, although I know when these uh, most recent bank failures happened, I know some people from the White House were saying that anybody that's uninsured depositors will be made whole. And I'm trying to think to myself, how is that going to happen? Because yeah, I don't want, especially that lady want, in California, and yes, yeah. Wow. And she's, so she was out four hundred thousand. So how can she be out four hundred thousand? And in some of these 
other current clients, one client had $487 million parked at that bank in uninsured deposits. And I, the first thing I'm thinking is two things. Why didn't the bank, somebody within the bank, kind of monitor some of these uninsured depositors and see how big they were getting? And yeah, yeah. Two, does the bank have a, a responsibility to notify or, or educate their uh, depositors as far as as far as far in, insurance protections? They have to be prudent. And to me, that was not showing any prudence at all. Yeah. Um, that, that, so, so prudence is a subjective term or? <laughs> you know. Yeah, it's, you're right. It's subjective, but I can't believe that that went unnoticed. And then I don't know who the CFO was for that company that had the 487 million, but my goodness, talk about people being asleep at the wheel. It's just yeah. unbelievable. So when you said that you could tell like how the banks failed or, or what the cause was, you know, from your own analysis of, of the situation, did, do you think that it was similar factors with these recent bank failures or, or did they all make different mistakes? I'd say they're, they're kind of re, uh, pretty reasonable, the, the same. For example, one of the recent bank failures, they had billions of dollars in government bonds, which you think, oh, you know, they're being pretty prudent. They're being safe. They're buying government bonds in their investment portfolio. Until However, interest rates goes up. Yeah. Right. Exactly. When the Fed started raising rates to combat inflation, well, as we know, when interest rates rise, the value of the bond goes down. And so they're left with hardly anything on the dollar in these bonds. And so people start taking money out of the bank. And once once that happens, you have a liquidity crisis. So on a typical bank, you know, as far as like you talk about liquidity, so just like what percentage do they usually keep liquid or is that depending on the bank? It depends on the bank because different banks are structured differently. So it's not a good answer for that question, but depends okay. on the bank. And then, uh, and then. How often, how often did banks get audited or examined, you know, to kind of make sure that they were staying, uh, I don't know what the best term is, you know, banking, right? You know, now that they have to be intelligent right. bankers. Like I said, 18 months is, was our normal exam cycle. Um, some of the bigger banks, the JP Morgan Chase, the, the huge bankers in the country, they're regulated probably annually and even quarterly visit, visitations. And it's not so, just so, one agency. So big, all so bigger gets more scrutiny. Exactly. Okay. Right on. So do you still have friends that are in the business with the FDIC? Yes, I do. I stay in close contact with a lot of my uh, coworkers, ex-coworkers. And uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase it. Like, so so what's the attitude? Do you think it's uh, declined since since you were in or or is it still uh, pretty just as smooth with those only having to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day? <laughs> <laughs> no more of those, thank goodness. But I think it's pretty similar today. Um, there's more opportunities and people are doing different things. A lot of my coworkers are moving on to different things like they're specializing in maybe information technology examinations or trust examinations. So there's a lot of opportunities. And so it's kind of, you make it what you, what you can. And, you know, if, if you're bored, it's your own fault. If you work for the yeah. FKC, cause there's a lot of opportunity. So you'd recommend it to somebody that's uh, in school for like finance or accounting or. I definitely would. The only bad thing about the FDAC as, as well as all regulatory agencies is you might have to travel more than you you would like to. Right. And you raised a family while you were working. Yes, I did. One thing that allowed that to happen smoothly is flexibility. So if my son was playing 
at a baseball game, I was anywhere near it, I would ask my boss, hey, can I take a half a day off so I can watch a, a baseball game? Go for it. It was the flexibility was awesome and it made it all work out well. Yeah. So they gave you flexibility as long as you weren't knee deep in or, or neck deep in uh in some kind of bank failure. Yes, like I, when I was in Dallas for those uh three months, there was no person, I'll take that back in a minute, that could get me out of that examination or that 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 position, except for my my dear mother in law passed away at ninety four. Oh no. And we were all expecting it. It wasn't a surprise, but she was the only person that got me out of Dallas. And so I took a couple of days off and attended her funeral and then headed back to Dallas. And I thanked her for getting me home. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, for that three months, the only couple of days that you took off was to go uh, mourn, the mourn, uh, do that mourning process. Sure. That was it. Wow. I would say it was pretty intense. So you've been retired now for six years? Yeah, about six years. So do you do you find yourself enjoying retirement or how are you spending most of your free time now? Yes, I do. I got a couple of organizations that uh, roped me into being the treasurer. So it keeps me busy a little <laughs> bit with the numbers. So I'm not totally bored. So and a lot of projects around at home and I'm busy. Okay, right, right on. So uh Really appreciate you being here, Pete. And this has been an absolute fantastic talk with you. Enjoyed having you on the Wealth Doc podcast. Uh, super appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Mike. And thank you, Wendy. I appreciate it. Well, we're so glad that you're here, Pete. Uh, Mike, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, uh, we can check out my website at uh, sobblepointwealthmanagement.com, spelled S-A-B-L-E, like sobblepointwealthmanagement.com. Or my team is happy to assist uh, on the phone at 231 231- Four two five four three zero eight again two three one four two five four three zero eight. And thank you for joining us today. Please like, follow, and share this podcast with your friends. Until next time, I'm Wendy McConnell. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Doc Podcast with Mike Heckman. Click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. Have questions? Visit our website at sobblepointwealthmanagement.com. Or give us a call at 231-425-4308. And don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Sobble Point Wealth Management. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Content here is for illustrative purposes and general information only. It is not legal, tax, or individualized financial advice, nor is it a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any specific security or engage in any specific trading strategy. Results will vary. Past performance is no indication of future results or success. Market conditions change continuously. This commentary reflects the personal opinions, viewpoints, and analyses of Mike Heckman. It does not necessarily represent those of RFG Advisory, Private Client Services, their clients, or their employees. This commentary should not be regarded as a description of advisory services provided by Mike Heckman or RFG Advisory or performance returns of any client. The views reflected in the commentary are subject to change at any time without notice. 
Securities offered by registered representatives of private client services, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services offered by investment advisory representatives of RFG Advisory, a registered investment advisor. Private client services, Mike Heckman and RFG Advisory, are unaffiliated entities. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where RFG Advisory and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. No advisory services may be rendered by RFG Advisory unless a client agreement is in place. Hello, my name is Pete Oquist and I am a client of Mike Heckman's and I'm not being paid to do any participation on this podcast.